We are in the 48th chapter. We're in a series, Truth for Understanding Our World. And, and in that series, part 34, and the, the subtitle for today's message, God's Future Purposes for Israel. God's Future Purposes for Israel. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, don't have a long text today. I, I purposely just wanted to, to, to stop and take this chapter. It's a fairly, as, as ser- texts in the book of Genesis go, a fairly short uh, text. Uh, but because of the significance of this text for our lives. So a lot of things we talk about in the, the Christian life, I'll, I'll use the term Christianese, we have these words that we use that oftentimes aren't filled with a lot of meaning. We, we use them, we're not always sure what we're talking about. And this is one of those texts where we can pause and let the, the, the Bible inform our understanding of those words, in, in two words in particular that we're going to address, adoption and blessing. Adoption and blessing. It's been said by many, and I, I, not, I wouldn't debate the point, that the, the subject of adoption uh, for the Christian may be the most important subject in the New Testament. And, and I'm not talking about Christians adopting children. I'm talking about our adoption into the family of God. And, and yet that doctrine, that, that theology, probably has its roots in the text that we're in today. And so if we can allow this text to speak to us, I think it will broaden our understanding of so much that goes on in the New Testament. If you would, join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds to to understand uh, the truth of your word, to help us to see with the kind of scene that Jacob or Israel did in this scene. Help us to comprehend and understand what it means for us today and the world today. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, some texts in the Bible are in what one might call flyover country. You know, that that space between the East Coast and the West Coast where some people who think that that's the only places where important things happen. Well, they fly over one to get to the other and think the rest of it somewhat unimportant. Uh, and, and sometimes we do that with devotional reading. We'll read through the Bible and we have those chapters where we, you know, they're familiar to us. We really like them. We kind of zoom in and then, and then we kind of go through the, the flyover country. You know, we kind of read fast and go through like, oh, I wish I could get through this. Right? And, and this might fall into that, that flyover section, at least for many of us. It, what people don't often realize about flyover country is, you know, whatever you're eating on the East Coast or the West Coast was probably grown in flyover country. So all the good stuff that you enjoy uh, came from the flyover country. And I think that's true of this text, that we enjoy a lot of good stuff from this text, right? A lot of great stuff when we get to the New Testament, but it was grown here. And we need to stop and look at how it was grown and what it's about so that it informs us there and provides us with a feast. Uh, later in the scriptures. The, the scene before us is a deathbed scene. Verse 10 of our text tells us that in the, in the deathbed scene is, is Jacob or Israel. His name is used interchangeably in many places here. and His name was changed. And, and, and Jacob is on his deathbed. And he's going to give the blessing to his sons. It starts in chapter 48 with uh, Joseph's and his sons. And, and then we have chapter 49 we'll look at next week. But uh, the rest of the sons. But, but here we have this scene where uh, we're told in verse 10. Israel's eyes were failing because of old age. And he could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons 
close to him. It's reminiscent, that, that, that picture there, of Jacob's own blessing. When he went to his own father, Isaac, to receive the blessing, his, his dad's health was failing, his eyes could hardly see, and of course that helped Jacob pull a, a one over on him, right? He could get, get by with acting like he's Esau and get the blessing that God had intended for him, and the dad was resisting giving it to him. It was supposed to go to him, but, but dad was not going to give it to him. He was going to give it to Esau, and we looked at that when we were there. So, so that trickery was made. But what we, what we discover here is that there, you know, there, Isaac couldn't see, therefore he didn't know what he was doing. Here, Israel, though he can't see, the story makes very clear that he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing. He, he, in fact, he, does he not only see in some sense, he sees into God's purposes for the future. And there, he has a singleness of mind in that purpose, a firmness of purpose, and uh, he does God's will. And, and in fact, which, as it often does, God's will overturns, as we will see, the expectations of the world. We'll discover today that Jacob sees into Israel's future, not only the, the future of the twelve tribes, but he sets up the glorious future of God's people, realized fully only in the church. That means that this story is ultimately about you and me. So as foreign as the account might seem on the surface, it, it has to do with what makes the, the, the whole of the Bible relevant to you and I. It's the food that feeds the rest of the story, if you will. I plan to cover this text uh, under three headings, the first being adoption, the second blessing, and the third, yes, A, B, C, the church. And so adoption, blessing, the church. And this last one is really just connecting the first two to our lives why they matter to us. So lean in during the first two so that you can enjoy the feast when we, when we get to the New Testament aspect of this in the third one. So let's begin under the heading of adoption, and this covers verses 1 through 12. Sometime later, Joseph was told, your father is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him, when Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, he, Israel rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed me and said to me, I am going to make you fruitful and increase your numbers. I, am, I will make you a community of peoples, and I will give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Now then, your two sons... Born to you in Egypt, before I came to you here, will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Any children born to you after them will be yours. In the territory they inherit, they will be reckoned under the names of their brothers. As I was returning from uh, Padam, uh, Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died, that was Joseph's mother, in the land of Canaan while we were still on the way, a little distance from Ephrath. So I buried her there beside the road to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, who are these? They are the sons God has given me here, Joseph said to his father. Then Israel said, bring them to me so that I may bless them. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age, and he could hardly see. 
So Joseph brought his sons close to him, and his father kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and now God has allowed me to see your children too. Then Joseph removed them from Israel's knees and bowed down with his face to the ground. The the strangeness of this scene to us may, may cause many to miss what's happening here. What's significant here that is taking place, especially significant for us. It's an adoption scene. Verses 1 through 7 introduce the adoption, explain what's going to take place after a few introductory remarks. And then verses 8 through 12 are the actual legal adoption ceremony following the the, the guidelines of that day. So, for instance, in verse 8, when Jacob asks Joseph, who are these? It isn't as if he doesn't know who these two boys are. They're his grandsons. He's been there for a long time now, so maybe 17 years he's kind of gotten to know them. So he knows who they are. This is the formal introduction to the adoption ceremony. State their names, we might say today. When at a wedding and the minister asks, uh, who gives this bride in marriage? He and everybody else in the room knows the answer to that question. But we still go through it, don't we? We go through it because it's part of the formality of the process of the ceremony itself, because this is a legal event, and that's what's taking place here. Who are these? (laughs) And Joseph then introduces them. Then in verse 12, when Joseph removed them from Israel's knees. Now, that's an interesting statement. What were they doing on his knees? I mean, you got to realize at this point, these kids are 20 years old or more. Okay, so it's not like, oh, here come to Papa. That's, That's not what's taking place. Um, so, so this removal from his knees, and it could be read removal from his knees, removal from by his knees. I mean, they were either standing right at his knees or they were sitting on his knees. But that, again, is part of the legal adoption ceremony of that time. It was symbolic. I mean, this was back in the day when they used euphemisms. We no longer use those these days. We just say things crassly. But they would use euphemisms for things. And, and I, I, I do long for the day when we could just go back to that. It's just so much simpler. But, but they use these. So, so by his knees, what, it was symbolic of the fact that, that in effect, what is, what is being said here is these sons are as if they came out of my womb now. From between my knees. And to be a little more graphic. That's what it's communicating. They are mine It symbolized, as Bruce Waltke says, his giving them birth in place of Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So it's, it's a symbolic gesture, if you will, of birth coming from Jacob himself. Hence, clearly the reason for even mentioning his um, wife, uh, uh, Rachel, uh, in, in the text itself. But it, but it begs a question. Why does Jacob adopt these two boys? Why does he adopt Joseph's sons? Adoptions happen in our day for very different reasons, and good ones. I'm just saying very different reasons than what we see here. We would not 
find, at least very often, and certainly in the Western world, adoptions taking place for this reason. I mean, think about it for just a moment. We would never think that Jacob, who has 12 boys and a daughter, has any reason to adopt anyone else, especially since the two boys in question have a father who loves them and is more than happy and capable of taking care of them. So, why in the world would Jacob adopt them? And what is evident from the the storyline, why is Joseph good with that? He seems to be perfectly fine with the, the, the whole thing. So, so what's going on in that? What, what could possibly motivate this adoption? Well, let me ask the, the question from a, a theological perspective, or to say it another way, to ask it from the perspective of redemptive history, God's plan in saving humanity. If I think of it in those terms, why in light of God's plan for saving humanity would Jacob need to adopt these sons? Because that's really what His life is about in this whole scene with the blessing and God's call of Abraham and blessing Abraham and being a blessing. All nations of the world will be blessed through him. That's that's really what's the end in mind for all of this. So why in light of that would, 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 what in light of that would cause Israel to adopt Joseph's two sons? Now, recall from the previous scene a couple weeks ago when when we were back in the previous scene that that Jacob, he seemed... when, when, when Joseph came out to meet, Jacob's coming from the land of Canaan 17 years ago to now meet uh, 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 Joseph, his son, who's there. And, and, and Joseph comes out with all his chariot and his, all of his Egyptian entourage to meet his dad, right? And, 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 and Jacob's response is, is a little bit like, yeah, yeah, it's a little bit awkward in that moment. You may recall that as we walked through that. And, and there's this kind of a taken back sort of sense that he has. I, I think, of course, we don't know for certain, that it was really about how Egyptian uh, Joseph had become. And, and that was probably a bit uncomfortable for Jacob. Jacob's, or Joseph's sons were not only born and raised in Egypt, they were born to the daughter of a priest of On. And, and we can't be certain, but I, but I would maybe say that what provides the best explanation for this scene is that Jacob saw these two boys as essentially Gentiles, as essentially Egyptians, raised in the culture of Egypt, raised, you know, born uh, from, the, from uh, a mother who was a, uh, the, the daughter of a priest of a, a pagan religion. Okay, so, so there's a lot going on there. And, and there's a lot to suggest that this would have been the view of the Jews later in history. And, and Joseph seems to be aware of this need because he brings the sons without being asked to bring them. He never asked to bring them, at least in, within the storyline. And, and when all is done, he bows down before Jacob. So there's no resistance. He's bowing down in honor. So he's all good with the whole program. And throughout the adoption scene, whenever Jacob says or does something, he is referred to, anything related to this adoption, he's referred to or called by the name Israel, not Jacob. So you see Jacob mentioned, you know, Jacob said to Joseph this, that, the other. But anything relevant to the adoption itself, Israel said. Israel said. Israel did this. Israel did that. So that's relevant because they're being adopted into Israel. And we'll talk about the significance of that uh, later when we get to point number three, our third heading. This adoption creates a problem, though. So we've, we've kind of described the scene and what's taking place, but it does create a problem. You might say, how does it create a problem? Well, simple enough. Now Jacob has 13 sons. 
I, I know you might say I counted 14 because you got Joseph. But see, technically, Joseph is replaced by two. So 12 becomes 13 because Joseph is removed and one, two are put in his place. So now 13. Because when they get to the land, a nation in, in biblical terminology is, is founded upon 12. That's kind of the foundation stone. And when we get to the land later, it will be divided into 12 areas, 12 regions by the tribes. But now we've got 13. Now, when Israel was first named in the book of Genesis, it was 12, the, the 12 sons of, of, uh, of Jacob. But however, when, when, when Israel comes out of Egypt and they're on their way to the promised land, the whole story of Exodus, Leviticus, what happens is the tribe of Levi is now named as the priestly tribe, and they will no longer have an inheritance in the, the nation of Israel, the people of God. So that essentially, now we've brought it back to 12, because now you have 12 that get an inheritance. But that's in the future. It's not here. It's a problem right here. you got 13, right? So that'll take care of the problem, at least at that point, for what takes place. And, 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 and so, this, this issue of 13. Now, when we, get to, when we get to the promised land, just relevant to our day, you've got, you've, you've got Levi becoming the priestly tribe. And, and God sets up the economy this way. He says, you don't get any inheritance. So unlike the priests in Egypt, who we saw a couple of weeks ago, the priests in Egypt, what did, what did they get? They got paid for by Pharaoh. Everything They got on a total inheritance. Nobody else got one. And the people of God, it was reversed. The, the priestly tribe had to live by faith, and that made, it meant that they have, have a relationship with the community because now the, the 12 tribes, not counting Levi, got an inheritance. But they had to provide for the, 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 the priestly tribe by giving a tenth. And, and so from that tenth, you run up the math, you say, well, wait a minute, that's 12 tenths. They got more. But, but yes, but from that tenth came what? Provision for the one tribe and the poor. And so you, you, that provided enough for the one tribe and the poor. But they had to live by faith. And Paul, when we get to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul talks about the, the fact that the same way that the Levites were provided for, so those who uh, make their living from the, or, or those who preach the gospel, make their living from the gospel. In other words, those that, that, that they do other things, they have an inheritance that provides for them, then they provide so that those who are dedicated to the preaching of the gospel make their living. And so we, we take care of uh, uh, those who are in ministry as well as the poor from that, uh, from that tithe following that same pattern. But at this moment, the moment of this adoption... By adopting these two Gentile sons of Joseph, Israel has 13 tribes. Not only are they adopted in, but Ephraim is given preeminence over all the brothers, over all Israel. Now that aspect will come out under this next heading, which is the blessing. So here we are at the blessing, and read with me beginning in verse 13, and we'll read the rest of the story. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh on his uh, left uh, toward Israel's right hand, and he and brought them close to him. But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, uh, though he was the younger. And crossing his arm, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. And then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless the boys. May he be called by the name of the, uh, 
uh, and the names of my uh, fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may he increase greatly on the earth. When Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased, so he took the hand of his father, uh, his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head, and uh, Joseph said to him, No, my, uh, uh, no, my father, this, is, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But, but as Jacob makes clear, he knows exactly what he's doing. But his father refused and said, I, I know, my son, I, I know. He too will become a people and he too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he and his descendants will become a group of nations. He blessed them in that day and said, in your name all, will Israel pronounce this blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So he put um, uh, Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, I'm about to die. But God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. And, and, and to you I give one more uh, ridge of land than to your brothers, the ridge that I took from the Amorites with my sword and bow. Uh, what is this whole scene about? Well, the first scene was about adoption. This whole scene is about blessing. Blessing. Do you want the blessing of God on your life? We pray, Lord, bless our work. Or we might pray, Lord, bless this particular person. Sometimes we, we say that because we don't know what else to pray. You know, Lord, bless them. And we, you know, we're not sure necessarily what we're praying, but we know that that's good, right? I mean, it's like, yeah, that's, that's good. Whatever that is, that's probably good. So let's, let's, Lord, bless them. And that's a good way to pray. But what are we asking for? Lord, bless me. Well, what are we asking for? We, we probably ought to know what we're asking for. I mean, you know, maybe we, maybe we don't want it, right? I mean, what, what is it? What does it mean? Well, I think we do, but it'd probably be good to straighten out at least what we're asking for. Paul says in Ephesians 1, verse 3, he says, Praised be to, this is the New International Version, but you could read it this way, Blessed be the God and Father, because it's the same wording used. So we are blessed by God, but we return blessing to God. And in that context, it has a slightly different overture and understanding. But, but praise be to or blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Oh, that sounds great, right? It does. It, it is. But what does it mean? To the Galatians, Paul writes, and we looked at this a couple weeks ago, but he writes that Jesus died in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That's pretty high purpose. Uh, I mean, if this is why Jesus died, that, that seems to be significant. Now, obviously, we could name a number of reasons why Jesus died, but just the fact that Paul highlights this one in, in an argument in a, in a letter that he's writing about the very core of the gospel does give it some preeminence that we ought to stop and at least think about. In fact, not only does he say that, right above that, he, he says that when God announced to Abraham from Genesis 12, all nations on earth will be blessed through you, Paul says that was an announcement of the gospel in advance. So let's kind of put that together and think about it a moment. Pronouncing the blessing of Abraham on the Gentiles is proclaiming the gospel in advance. So this blessing is intricately tied to the gospel, isn't it? They're woven together. It would be important for us to maybe think about what it is. And what does this blessing have to do with the gospel? Well, apparently a whole lot. The blessing which Jacob gives to these sons, and the rest of the sons in chapter 49, as we'll see later, was given to Jacob 
from Isaac, who received it from Abraham. It is the blessing of Abraham. Through Jacob or Israel, it now belongs to all 12 sons to Israel. Well, all 13 sons, we could say at this moment. Jacob, weak and hardly able to see, blessing his sons. It is reminiscent, as we said earlier, of Jacob and Esau going before Isaac, weak and unable to see, to get the blessing. Earlier we talked about differences between the two scenes, but there's a, there's a major similarity between these two scenes. The younger gets the blessing of the firstborn, and the first, Jacob, instead of Esau, gets the blessing, right? We're familiar with that story, which was God's purpose that was announced at their birth. And then, in this scene, the younger gets the blessing, but this, in this case, Jacob knows exactly what he's doing. He understands that, but Joseph's protesting. God has always been about turning over our human power structures. And that's exactly what is being done here. Joseph doesn't like it. He's, he's apparently gotten accustomed to power. I mean, he's a pretty powerful dude, right? And so I'm very powerful, and I'm gonna, you know, we're going to keep power in the way that we, we do things in, in the world. Maybe he forgets that he was the younger, and that Reuben was supposed to get it, and Simeon, and, and Levi, and yet Dad chose to give it to him. Isaac was also the younger. We don't often think about that, but if you recall the story, Ishmael was the older brother. And Abraham was all good with him getting the blessing. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But that's not how God was going to do things. No, I'm going to give it to the, the one of promise. And Paul picks up on that, but I don't have time for that today. We'll do that another day, so maybe. But you have... Isaac, getting it rather than Ishmael. Jacob rather than Esau. Joseph rather than Reuben. Ephraim now rather than Manasseh. What is this blessing? Uh, They're getting it. What is it? That's the blessing of the firstborn, and that's kind of a part and parcel of the whole blessing, which everybody in this case gets some of. But here's the thing. I know we like clean definitions, you know, it's like, you know, if, if you're going to give me a, a painting of a barnyard scene, I want a realist painting. I want to see a barn. I want to see cows. And this is more like an impressionist painting. I say, I want. That's, you know, some people want that. I, I like impressionist paintings. I, I think they're pretty cool. I like both. But, but the realist, that was, everything was painted like it actually looked. In impressionist paintings, you, you, you're getting kind of ideas. It's been put up there in a way that it draws your mind to say that's what it is. And, and really... We get more of, in, in Scripture, more of an impressionist painting of what the blessing is and, and, and not a realist painting. We don't get a clean definition. I know we may want one, but that's not really what we get. So we, we do our best to give it a clean definition. But I think we're wise to start with the impression that is painted. So let's look at blessing and curse, curses in, 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 the, in the story of Genesis. Blessing and cursing in, in Genesis. If, if one were to back up, so let's not, let's not try to examine the leaf or even the tree. Let's back up and examine the forest, right? And not let the, 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 that, that get lost in the midst of looking at things too detailed. And if we back up and look at the occurrences of blessing and curse in the book of Genesis and break it down by sections. Now, sections, I don't mean chapters like we have them. Uh, you may recall, and we talked about this some time back, that the book is, 
got an introduction. God creates heaven and earth, right? It's introduction. And then it's got ten sections, each introduced with the language uh, roughly translated. And this is the record of the generations of. Right? And you got ten of those. So that's the whole book of Genesis. Okay? So if you, if you look at how the occurrences of blessing and curse occur in those sections, I think it tells a story. Okay? So in the first section, the introduction, where God creates heaven and earth and he creates life, right? You have three occurrences of blessing and zero occurrences of curse. Well, then you go to the next section. What is the next section? What's well, the fall? The records of the generations of the heavens and the earth, which seems odd to us. But that's the fall and the story of Cain, right? With Cain and Abel and murder and, and all that goes on in the story of Cain through the end of chapter 4. So you have that section. And in that section, you have three occurrences of the curse and zero occurrences of the blessing. So you can see how in the creation you have three blessings, zero curse. Offset now in the fall, three curse, zero blessing. But then as you look at the rest of the book, so the nine more sections, well, you can immediately drop four of them because four of them have no references to either. And those are those four real short sections that just basically they're house cleaning sections. You know, the record of Ishmael, it's about this long, and the record of Esau, a little bit longer. But they have no occurrences of either because they're not about that. So that leaves you with five sections. And what happens in these five sections is fascinating to me and just Allow this to paint a picture. Don't try to memorize this. This isn't going to help you memorize. Just allow it to paint a little bit of a picture. So three blessings in the creation scene where life is created. Three, three curses in the, in the fall scene, right? So you get the, the, the distinction. One brings death and destruction. The, the first scene is filled with life and blessing and fruitfulness and increase and, and walking with God. The second scene is, is filled with, with shame and fear and Envy and hatred and murder, that's where the curse falls. So you kind of get a picture of what blessing and curse are about by just allowing it to paint that impression in your mind. So of those five remaining ones, you have the record of the generations of Adam. You have one mention of blessing, one mention of curse. And the record of the generations of Noah, where God makes a covenant, you have two mentions of blessing to one mention of curse. So a little two to one, so the blessing's increasing. But then you get to God's call of Abraham. It's the record of the generations of Terah. That's Abraham's father. And and in that story where the blessing of Abraham, now God's intervening in human history. He's going to do something now that's going to be different than just letting the curse run rampant as it had up to the time of Noah and and so forth and the time of Babel. But now he's going to intervene and he's going to bring grace and he's going to bring life. What does he do? Well, in that section, you have 21 mentions of blessing and one mention of curse. (laughs) 21 to 1. Okay? Now, think about that. Now, now think of the next one, the record of Isaac's generations. It's 41 mentions of blessing to two mentions of curse. So, still basically a 20 to 1 ratio in both of those. And then in the final section, this whole story of Joseph, Jacob's descendants, the record of Jacob's descendants, It's 19 to 1. So between those three sections, it remains 20 to 1 consistently, 80 mentions to 4 of the curse, and and, and, and you have that. So it tells us that blessing is something about what God is doing to restore creation back to what it was, life and blessing, not filled with envy and strife and hatred and murder. This blessing has to do with renewal and restoration. The blessing is about the renewal and restoration of creation. The blessing never comes to someone as if that person were a cul-de-sac 
It comes to them as if they are a distribution center. Abraham. It's not just for him. It's for the world. Jacob. And by the way, Abraham, for that blessing to to, to matter to him, it meant for him to leave everything he knew and become a stranger in a strange land. Jacob. He wanted this blessing, but it meant leaving the land of promise, not once but twice, and having a life filled with trouble in order to form a people that would be used to reach the world. For Joseph, it meant being sold into slavery and suffering in order to bring about the saving of many lives and the feeding of the entire known world at the time, in a time of famine, a time when creation itself was unraveling back to non-creation. Nobody could eat, the opposite of the garden. No multiplying, no food, and yet the blessing changed all of that. Learning the story of Genesis helps us understand that, that Paul is not talking out of both sides of his mouth when he says we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places and, oh, by the way, we're called to share in Christ's sufferings. He's not talking out of both sides of his mouth. They go together. They go together, always have gone together. We have the privilege of being restored to the image of God as those who bring life to the creation around us who even when we suffer, bring about renewal and restoration of creation. The earth, yes, but the inhabitants of the earth, all of them. So what is blessing? We've done the Impressionist painting. Maybe we can get close to a definition, though I think the definition loses much that you gain in the Impressionist painting. But well, it, to bless simply means to speak good. It's the blessing of Abraham came from God and Jacob, and it's mediated to Israel. So we might say that just as God spoke and put the world in order in Genesis chapter 1 and made it fruitful, so the blessing of God's speaking blessing to us is that word which renews and restores creation. He created by his word, he renews and restores creation by his word, and that, that word is called his blessing, and it's made to renew and restore creation. Our lives, as a part of that creation, and those to whom we are sent are to be blessed. Our lives are to be renewed and restored, and those to whom we are sent. Ephraim. Here we have Ephraim, and he gets the blessing of the firstborn. And just briefly, what's the significance of the blessing of the firstborn on Ephraim? Well, you might be aware that King David came from the line of, what, Judah, right? King David came from the line, tribe of Judah, However, when, king, when David's grandson, the king after Solomon, became king, the kingdom was divided, right? And there were ten tribes that went with one king and two tribes that went with David's grandson, okay? We call them the Jews because they are, their king was from the tribe of Judah. But the other ten, they were called, not Jews, they were called under, by the name of Ephraim, Joseph's son, the one that got the blessing of the firstborn. So he had the greater number by far, the bigger, both in space, of course, and in population of what we know of as Israel or think of as Israel. But they were called Israel, and the other was called uh, uh, Judah. We'll talk about why this is significant for us, but here you can see that what Jacob sees is the future of, 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 of Israel uh, and, and, and the role of Ephraim in that future as he sees the purposes of God. But we'll, we'll look at it more in, in this next section. But for now, it's important to see that dying Jacob, who has failing eyes, sees quite well the, what the purposes of God are. And they'll only become more clear in the new covenant. 
the church. That's our third scene. We'll just spend a few minutes here, but I think it's important to take this back to us. Okay? Adoption into Israel has been possible from the beginning of Israel, right here in our text. It begins right here. Here you have Israel sitting there. He's got 12 sons, and yet he adopts these two sons into Israel. So adoption into Israel has been a part of the plan from the very beginning. And from the beginning, it would appear, if, if at least our take on, on, on these two sons is correct, that it's been possible for Gentiles to be adopted into Israel. From the beginning, the tribes of Israel, those people groups that make up the people of Israel, were also interchangeable. Notice that it was 12 tribes made up of, Joseph's, or of Jacob's 12 sons, but then all of a sudden that changes. Now you've got 12 tribes, but the, you're interchanging tribes to get that to happen so that you have 12 and not 13. And if Joseph is out and Ephraim and Manasseh are in, but not really out because they're in. But Levi's now a priestly tribe, so you see how that... There's this interchangeableness of the parts to make up the community, the nation. The northern kingdom of Israel was called by the name Ephraim, just as the southern kingdom, uh, Judah. Now, here's what's fascinating, and Paul plays on this in the New Testament, and it's relevant to us because we are the church. When Assyria came down taking the, the, the northern kingdom, Israel, into captivity. He took those ten tribes into captivity. Then we're familiar with the Babylonian captivity a little more, where the, the two southern tribes were taken, and they were later returned. But you need to remember, the ten tribes were never returned. They never came back. There was no return to the land. So you keep that in mind, it becomes very relevant for Paul's thinking in the New Testament. They were scattered to the ends of the earth. Yet in Romans, Paul takes verses, which in the book of Hosea, in their original context, were speaking of Israel, meaning Ephraim, these northern tribes, the northern kingdom, being scattered to the nations and no longer being called the people of God. I will call those who are my people, not my people. No longer being called the people of God. Then when it speaks of God regathering them, Paul applies it to the Gentiles who are being brought in. So he takes verses that in Hosea would appear to be talking about these lost tribes of Israel being regathered. And Paul says, yes, and through these Gentiles, they're coming back in. I will take those who are not my people and call them my people. In Romans 9, 25 and 26. And that, that leads to his discussion a little later in Romans about being grafted into the olive tree, taking wild branches and grafting them into the, the olive tree. Now, we might think that Paul was playing loose with Scripture. But in fact, he wasn't. Paul understood exactly what was going on. Jacob had a vision for a future beyond the northern kingdom. Ephraim indeed would become greater in number in Israel than his brothers. In in Ephraim, the Gentiles' son's name, by which the ten tribes were called, the number of Israelites would become as numerous as the sand on the seashore. The scene of adoption in Genesis 48 of Ephraim and Manasseh into Israel foreshadows the adoption of Gentiles into the Israel of God, the people who come under God as king. When Ephraim and Manasseh were adopted into Israel, Israel wasn't replaced. We're not talking about replacing Israel here. Ephraim and Manasseh were grafted in. They were adopted. And when we are grafted into the olive tree, Israel, the olive tree isn't replaced. Ultimately, it's Jesus Christ. It's another, another message. But we become part of that same olive tree. Adoption into Christ, 
Our adoption in Christ is into Israel. And it means that we are every bit as much a part of Israel as if Jacob had had us himself. As if we had been put at his knees and adopted in as if we came from him. That is why Paul calls the church in Galatians 6 the Israel of God. Now let's just read briefly this text in Ephesians about the blessing that we began with. And as we do, let's pay attention to the connection between adoption and blessing, just as we have it in Genesis 48. In Ephesians 1, we're going to read verses 3 through 6. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ for... You're going to tell us how this blessing came about. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for what? Adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with, the pleasure, with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. We Gentiles have been adopted into being sons of Israel through Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have the blessing which God gives to Abraham through Jesus Christ. This blessing is about the renewal and restoration of creation. But it doesn't come to you as if you're a cul-de-sac. It all stops there. It comes to you as if you're a through street, a distribution center, if you will so that you might give it to others. We are those through whom the nations of the world will be blessed. We are those through whom the number of the Israelites are like the sands on the seashore. We are those through whom God intends to renew and restore creation. We are the ones with access to the tree of life in the city of God, the leaves of which are for the healing of the nations. Don't wait around. Listen, church. Don't wait around for political parties to renew and restore creation. They won't do it. Don't wait around for your favorite political party to bring life to others. They won't do it. That's our job. Imagine Joseph waiting for Pharaoh to restore life or Abraham waiting for Sodom to get things right. No. Abraham was given the blessing, not Sodom. Joseph was given the blessing, not Pharaoh. It was their role to bring life and blessing even to a fallen world, so that Abraham actually even rescued Sodom and their king. He didn't want anything to do with their goods, but he brought blessing. That blessing means that we are called to share in the sufferings of Christ. And that may, in order to bless others, that may involve leaving what we know and being strangers in a strange land. For others, it may well mean that suffering, that means suffering in order to bring life to others. It calls us to a higher allegiance than the kingdoms of this world. Chris Wright wrote the following. He said, There is no blessing for ourselves or for others without faith and obedience. Those whom God calls to participate in his redemptive mission for the nations are those who exercise saving faith like Abraham and demonstrate costly obedience like Abraham. If we're we're going to participate in the redemptive mission, we've got to walk in Faith and the obedience that comes from faith like Abraham did. This blessing that we receive is the reversal of the curse of sin and death and is nothing short of salvation itself. Now, I'm not talking about salvation if you mean by that getting a ticket to heaven because that wouldn't make sense. But that isn't what salvation is about anyway, getting a ticket to heaven. Salvation's destination is not heaven in case you haven't read the end of the book. Salvation's destination is not there, it's here. 
A renewed heaven and earth. Renewed and restored. Yeah, but it's going to all burn. Well, yeah, that's the fire of purifying, not destruction. And we, by the Holy Spirit, have that fire that purifies. And we bring that purification to this world. This is the destination. We'll talk more about that next week in in chapter 49. but. But the destination is a renovated and renewed earth. The blessing of Abraham has everything to do with that. Now, it's a couple of closing comments, but the church fathers, it's interesting, if you look at the church fathers, they almost with one voice held that by creating 13 tribes in the scene that we're looking at today in, in, in Genesis 48, through these two essentially Gentile children, that, that in their minds it foreshadowed the, the, the calling of Paul, the apostle, who would be counted among the 12 apostles eventually, and he was the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, one might say, well, they're, they're just going crazy with allegory. Well, maybe. Or maybe they just understood the story so well that it came natural for them to see it that way. Maybe it grew out of seeing the church as the nations of Ephraim regathered into Israel like Paul talked about. And if so, it's not much of a stretch from, to, to get from there to, to Paul. Not much of a stretch at all. But how does all this change our thinking? I think it should change our thinking in this. If, if the goal of, is restoration and renewal of creation, rather than a let's get out of here and leave this place to burn mentality, we should have a let's get involved and transform this place back into the play, way that God made it and get involved in people's lives and help make them the way that God intended them to be. Renewal and restoration, not let's get out of here and let it burn. And that is entirely a different mindset. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we've looked, Lord, at adoption and blessing and and a scene that, that would be very unfamiliar to us. And yet, Lord, it speaks of our adoption. It lays the groundwork for the understanding of what it means to be adopted in Jesus Christ. So that we now have every spiritual blessing. We're not, we're not just given a few or some. We get the whole deal because we're in full as if we'd been born from Jacob himself. And that blessing is intended to transform our lives by your saving power and the lives of all those around us by your saving power. And so, Lord, we ask that you would make it so. In Jesus' name, amen.